This is a Federal News Network podcast. You've heard the old saying about airline food, terrible and not enough. Well, that's not good enough for NASA. Agency planners have been thinking hard about how you feed people on long missions, say a year to get to Mars. Here with the latest on a challenge competition to come up with a new space cuisine, the project manager for NASA's Centennial Challenges program, Monty Roman. Ms. Roman, good to have you on. Good morning. Uh, Thank you so very much for having us. Tell us what your objective here with this challenge is. So the objective is to provide the crew of long-duration missions in the future for NASA with food that is not only good, it has to taste good, is nutritious, is sustainable, and even perhaps the crew will have a little bit of fun putting them together. So there's not packaged food is something that they're going to be involved in the process. And the variety is also something very important. Yes, so long duration could be months or even a couple of years is the envision here, right? So that is correct. It could be a moon mission where supplies can be coming from Earth fairly quickly, or it can be a Mars mission where supplies are not available. So and in between, between the moon and Mars also, you know, it can be at any stage. Got it. And presumably there won't be gas stoves burning aboard any kind of a spacecraft, yet you want to get past the age of freeze-dried ice cream, I'm thinking. That, that is correct. Uh, if you have ever tasted that freeze-dry ice cream, is horrendous. So uh, nobody seems to like it. It's an experience, something everybody should experience, but it's terrible. So uh, absolutely something that will provide a variety of food options. Yeah, no mouthfuls of Cremora. All right, so let's talk about the competition. What is it you are seeking and who are you seeking it from? So when we were putting this together, we wanted to incentivize as many people in the public, uh, not only within the U.S., but outside of the U.S., to provide us alternatives for food that might taste good, that might be easy, or at least easier to grow or to manufacture in the surface of a planet or on a vehicle on our way to a planet or on the moon. So, you know, what we're doing is looking for alternatives to what we currently have that can provide a variety of options, like a living pantry. So the crew could go to a living pantry and then choose what boxes they want to turn on. And that will mean that will be their menu for the next week or month, however long it takes to get it ready. And you have made 18 initial grants to companies and outfits and nonprofits. Well, you tell me what types of outfits are the recipients of the first round here. So we have a good amount of, you know, we have universities, we have industry, we have starters, we have individual publics. Um, one good thing about this competition is everybody likes to eat, right? Or at least you have to eat. So everybody can participate in this competition, right? As long as the frame of mind is consistent with the hardships of actually a space mission, right? So in this ones, we have 18 top scorers, but we have, and something to understand, those will get money from NASA uh, to continue their development. But the ones that didn't make it in the top 18, we have really good ones too. So they will be, you know, incentivized to continue and hopefully demonstrate that what they are proposing is good. So not only those 18s are important to us, but the rest of the competitors are also important to us. They have really cool ideas. And how do you visualize food for astronauts or travelers for this long duration? That is to say, I mean, there's the MRE concept in the military where all the elements of a standard meal come in this box and it's heated up and there's everything from candy to whatever, a main dish and dessert and so forth. How do you envision what it is that is consumed up in space? 
So, you know, that currently there's a lot of that going on in, in missions to space. Only when there's a resupply mission to the space station, for example, they can have fresh fruits and chocolate and other things like that, right? So we envision, uh, again, a living pantry, a place where they can go and choose boxes or alternatives that they can decide what their menu is going to look like and not a pre assign menu before they launch, you know, necessarily. That might still be a need, but it's something where they have a say in what is it and, and they have the opportunity to either grow it. And, and this is not only about plants, it can be about fungi, it can be about fish, it can be about, I mean, 3D printing, you know, possibilities are incredible. We're speaking with Monsi Roman. She's a project manager for NASA's Centennial Challenges program, and we're talking about future food development for space. So then, as you envision it, then there is some participation by the travelers in the growing and also in the meal-by-meal preparation of the food, as opposed to what we saw in Jackie Kennedy in the White House popping a squeeze bag in and tasting something. So that's correct. Having a meal is something that is social. It has, you know, psychology too. It's not only, you know, it's the smell, it's the texture, it's the aesthetics, you know, the green growing things, the all those. It is just so many things that need to be considered when you're talking about food that we don't realize when we eat our food here because we take it for granted. But in space, that's not happening. So that's where we want to get to, where it's a complete experience. It's safe. Uh, there's variety. It is nutritious. And it maintains them healthy. Yeah, you want to grow your own fungi, but not have everything else turn into fungi while it's sitting up there. <laughs> As a microbiologist, I agree with you. That is not <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> and the implication of this challenge program, then, is that the standard food industry, which is a really big industry in the United States and worldwide, and they're pretty good at packaging things for long-term, you know, milk packages, but may not be up to the task for all the requirements of space, given the very long duration, the weight consideration, et cetera, et cetera. So you just hit on on something extremely important. The weight consideration is super important to us too, right? So you don't want to take everything with you, Um, not only because of how much it weighs, but also because the vitamins and things that you need for nutrition also degrades over time. So you want to, because of, you know, they're exposed to radiation, there's other, other factors in there too. So there's nothing better than to be able to go and have options to what you're eating. And this, you know, when we're talking about these little boxes in this living pantry, this can apply also to places on earth where people might want to do this too. So at their houses, they might be able to grow things or have options that they might not have otherwise. Even on Earth. Sure, even in the back of that tiny Airstream kitchen, they might want to do that. And no cans of asparagus then going up into space, I suppose. And from the current crop of 18 of the next round, people that get funded for the next round, anything in particular that struck you as particularly innovative? We had amazing options in there. Uh, Again, talking about fungi, there's something about fungi in there. There's something about making bread. There's this thing about the smell of bread, and right now they use um, alternatives, but perhaps being able to bake a little piece of bread. There's alternative to fruits, the use of uh, tissue engineering or tissue growth to actually grow the parts of fruits that will have the taste and the smell and the experience. And all of this will be made in a way that will be sustainable, which is super important to us. So nothing, you know, there's not going to be a trash generation that is going to go to the trash, literally. We're incentivizing people to think the whole cycle of the food box. And as people would develop, say, as you mentioned, tissue in space or the edible parts of this or that, there's got to be the factor of palatability, I imagine, too. 
Absolutely. And perhaps the definition of now a Mars kitchen or a kitchen in space, which will be very different to what a kitchen on Earth will look like, right? So you might have incubators to grow your food as part of your kitchen equipment. And perhaps in the future, that's how it was going to be. You know, some of those things might have applicability here on Earth, too. So there's there's a lot of really good stuff to be looking at. And what happens next with the 18 awardees? We have an award celebration uh, event in November where we're going to celebrate them. And then we are expecting to open the next phase of the competition, which will start the process of the teams, all the teams, not only the 18, but all the teams that want to come and demonstrate that they can do what they say they can do. And that starts with the first process of uh, a phase two level one. So um, and we are expecting to open that next calendar year. Monty Roman is a project manager for NASA's Centennial Challenges program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so very much for the opportunity to share with everybody what we're doing. It is exciting, and and we want to, um, anybody interested in participating, please look into the phase two, because anybody can come in brand new and be part of it. And you can look in the glove box of that old Pinto and see what might be growing and send it in. (laughs) Yes. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Chew on the Federal Drive by subscribing at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. 
but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. 
she turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.